0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader.
1: Well friends, good afternoon. What a joy. Uh, can I uh, introduce my uh, friend and colleague, Colin Hibopassi, um, whose wonderful book, Tales of a Country Parish, is what we're Considering this afternoon, and I'm glad to say we'll hear a little bit from the book. And um, Colin is an Anglican priest, uh, a writer and screenwriter living in uh, God's own diocese of Salisbury in (laughs) Wiltshire. And he's written about the, I wouldn't say the soul of film, really, the theology and philosophy of film in his previous acclaimed. Book perfect in weakness and all of the the rich hinterland of his uh, professional and personal experience comes into this wonderful book tales of a country parish and it's worth saying uh, at the outset i probably need to declare that we realized that a few months in that we were essentially writing a, a very similar <laughs> thing uh, about the same places In in the southwest of England, a comment. And I remember a memorable cup of coffee with you when we were halfway through writing. When we realised that, and sort of divided up. Shall I write about this standing stone, and you write about? We didn't quite come to blows, but it was close. I won that bit. Yeah, yeah. So we were sort of apportioning the landscape that we would, so that we 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 didn't end up writing, um, the, the same book. But but. Colin, thank you, first of all, for, for Tales. It's wise and winsome and and lyrical. From, from the first page, with this lovely, uh, there's a lovely image where Colin describes the boiled sweet colours of the stained glass windows uh, in their yellows, reds, and blues. And it was just, you know, that was a couple of lines in. And I thought, OK, this is going yeah. to be worth reading. And that continues throughout. It would be lovely just to hear a little bit from you about your the impetus for writing tales. What was that?
0: In short, in, in one word, the impetus, I suppose, for putting pen to paper in the first instance was lockdown. Uh, there's no um, beating about the bush, really. I think it was partly that sense of being called to love and care for a community uh, of parishioners and not being able to, the agony of I can't go around to visit this person in hospital, or I can't call on uh, Mrs. So-and-so to check she's okay, or whatever it was, you could pick up a phone, but it wasn't the same. Not being able to leave worship, struggling to figure out Zoom and so on, all, all those experiences of constriction and constraint, not being able to leave your, leave your home, And at the same time, through our television sets and everything else, the sense of the world opening up, the realization that our global economy, uh, the interconnectedness of our supply chains, uh, were all having an impact. So the world shrank and expanded at the same time. And somehow that sense of constraint and expansion resulted in... Without sounding... I don't want to sound sort of pious about it, but the other impetus is the landscape, or rather God in the landscape, and I am very... Andrew describes Salisbury Diocese as God's own diocese, and he, he, it's funny, but it, the landscape of the Wiltshire Downs is magnificent. And I felt so profoundly blessed by the fact that I could walk out of uh, my house to walk in the hills, and it was very early march 2020 uh and the agony of the experience of lockdown we forget what that trauma and tension what christine said just before this afternoon's talk um we're all still even if we don't recognize it exhausted by what happened to us uh two years ago um and we're still negotiating our way through the psychological and spiritual aftermath of covid it was terrifying for a start But it was also, I had a telephone call from someone at Wiltshire Council, um, March 2020, asking me how much spare capacity I had in the churchyards I look after. Because, uh, the person went on, uh, we may need that space uh, as overspill. Their word. You know, and that was, I can still feel the hairs on my arms and the back of my neck going, you know, overspill. Is that how we're going to, are we going to have to think about our neighbours, our parishioners, the people we love and care for, are we going to have to think about them as overspill, as just numbers? That that was terrifying. And and then the nitty gritty of everyday life, tearful parishioners ringing, how can we get a phone charger to Brian in hospital so that I can message him? You know, Uh, still, that phone call haunts me still. And... The conviction that came from that was, well, you know, I'm used to writing. I've always, you know, my my before before being ordained, uh, I wrote screenplays for television and film and and various things like that. And so I wasn't frightened of the blank page. And there, there was a moment, and I don't want to be pious, but there was a moment of conviction, whatever you want to call it, where, you know, what do you, what, what what you do, what are you doing, Colin? Get on with it. Uh, because you can communicate, so I started sending out. That—that's the genesis of so the book. Was 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 an, a daily email of reflection and prayer to comfort, to console, uh, to lift people's spirits, uh, to challenge a little bit, but to, but above all, perhaps just to stay in touch. And I wasn't writing for—it uh, was certainly in the early days. I wasn't writing for an editor. I wasn't writing for an audience. I wasn't writing for publication. I was writing for for, for my friends and the people I love. And I was writing from my heart. We all did that, didn't we? We all felt suddenly, deeply connected to the verities, the the profundities, the what, what anchors me, what holds me, what's the most important thing. Uh, and so it all spilled out. I basically just spilled my guts uh, to the parishioners and told stories about my, my wife who had COVID, my kids who were struggling with with school online, those sorts of things. That was
1: the genesis of the book. Which is and that's lovely. That the sort of journalistic but also deeply pastoral yeah. tone of this, where uh, as one might do in a in a sermon, you're sort of sharing your your life. This happened to me. Yeah, and it does feel a, a deeply pastoral, properly pastoral in every sense of caring for, connected to the land, uh, rooted in people's lives. Absolutely connected to the land and connected to people's
0: lives. But in what way, how do we... Um, I'm, I'm conscious that the heading for this festival is mapping the landscape. Mm. And the landscape became profoundly important to me and it came through in the writing that I was sharing. But it was also, how do we how do we measure this experience? It's immeasurable in a way. And so, can I, shall I read it a little bit? Shall I read a little a bit, bit about... And, and I hope this gives a flavour of... Um, you know, in, in, in a way, the landscape became a starting point. The experience of walking in the landscape that Brian and I were talking earlier about the physical experience of being present to God's creation around us, the physical process of walking and, sh- and wanting to share something of the experience um, with the people that I was writing for. So this is about, Andrew will know this place well, we've walked it together many times, Golden Ball Hill. Uh, overlooks the Vale of Pusey, where I live and work. Golden Ball Hill rises 268 metres above the Vale of Pusey, near the village of Hewish. On our map, the contours converge in tight, looping skeins to climb. But the view from the top, even in the rain, with clouds blowing in low and busy, is wonderful. On Tuesday evening, we stood up here, looking out over the valley, eating smoked trout sandwiches. One of my, uh, one of the church wardens in the parishes I look after runs a little uh, smoked trout business, so uh, that's a little perk at a PCC meeting. Get a, get a packet of smoked trout, which is really good. Uh, eating smoked trout sandwiches and drinking cheap d'Arone from chipped enamel cups. The next day, I felt every one of those. 268 metres in my aching legs, surely 268 metres isn't that high. Doesn't sound that high. But then how high is 268 metres exactly? Well, if 268 metres were a queue outside a supermarket, it would be 134 people long, assuming they were all socially distancing. But that doesn't really help. How about if I say the height of Golden Ball Hill? You see how, how our minds used to work during lockdown? Oh mine did, anyway. During lockdown, sort of riffing on what, what's distance, where am I in this context? So if I say Golden Ball, the height of Golden Ball Hill above sea level is 268 ten millionths of the distance between the North Pole and the equator, does that help? No help at all. It occurs to me that in a curious and unsettling way, the more accuracy we strive for and achieve, the less help it actually is. The current universal definition of a metre is, I'm quoting, is defined by taking the fixed numerical value of the speed of light in a vacuum, c, to be 299,792,458 299,792,458 when expressed in the unit m uh, s to the power of minus 1, where the second is defined in terms of the cesium frequency delta v c s. I don't know what that means. Does anyone else know? I mean, we're in a university. Someone will probably know what that means, but I didn't. So it's not helpful, but that is the definition, the current scientific definition of a meter. What makes a meter a meter? Is it something to do with fractions of the Earth's meridian, or the speed of light, or wavelengths of radiation from a Krypton 86 atom? For an answer, I could go to Paris, to the Bureau International des Poids et Mesures, where the standard meter bar is kept. But will that help me? Here's a quote. There is one thing of which one can say neither that it is one metre long, nor that it is not one metre long. And that is the standard metre in Paris. Does anyone know who's saying this? This is Ludwig Wittgenstein.
1: Yeah,
0: so it's neither one metre long, nor is it not one metre long. But this is, of course, not to ascribe any extraordinary property to it. This is still Wittgenstein but only to mark its peculiar role in the language game of measuring with a metre rule. Wittgenstein's point, I take it, is that to say something is a metre long is to compare it to the standard metre in Paris. But then we might ask, how do we know the metre in Paris is a metre? Could we measure the metre in Paris against the metre in Paris? Clearly not. For Wittgenstein, it's not possible to say if the Paris meter is a metre long because we couldn't have anything to measure it against except itself, pointlessly. Our system of measurement, he concludes, are ultimately arbitrary sets of rules, like the rules of a game. What if, instead, we measured the distance to the top of Golden Ball Hill like a child, in puddles, in tears? in blisters and blackberries, in conkers and in smiles. Grown-ups, we have hidden things with maps and words and measurements. And the more we come to feel we have an objective grasp of a real, measurable, mappable world around us, the more we lose track of who we are doing the measuring. Creation seems to confront us as a series of hard facts, rather than embrace us as loved elements of itself. That one didn't. That one didn't end up in tales of a country parish. Maybe.
1: <laughs>
0: maybe it was too. It was too. It was too too complicated. Maybe. Um, too difficult. But what I was trying to express in that in that passage, I think was that sense of lo- losing our way in the world, losing our grasp of the world through contraction. We had a prime minister who told us we couldn't leave our homes. That was Remember how extraordinary that was. And at the same time, our shops were emptying, our economies were crashing, and the world seemed vast and intricate and interconnected at the same time. How do we measure that so there was all those were the sorts of things churning around in my mind uh that resulted in in the reflections that i was
1: sending out to my poor parishioners <laughs> inflicting them all thank you so much it, it kind of the, the pandemic sort of both dislocated us mm. and relocated us didn't it we all had to to relate um we could relate remarkably on online as we still do. And it was revolutionary in that sense, which dislocated us from place. But then we were also having WhatsApp groups with our neighbors and taking prescription deliveries and, and, and so on and, and learning who we were living amongst Yeah, and discovering the, the, the birds and the, and, the, and the leaves and the names of the creatures. It was like, you know, there was a bit of, in urban or rural areas, a bit of that sort of Edenic naming of creation, learning the names of creation. Uh, as well so we were really placed and we were displaced at the same time there's a very that that dynamic is was fascinating in what it did for our sense of place I don't think it will be the same really um and I'd love to I'm I, I want to just stay with this sense of 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 the the broader idea of landscape and mapping which of course is our our theme this weekend um it's always been of interest to me that that in in the Garden of Eden, God's first question to humanity is locational. Where are you? And you say, It's where are you? Which feels like more than we're just under this tree, you know? It feels like a a, a deep where on earth <laughs> are you? And and Colin, what more? Tell us a, a little bit about the sort of broader cultural situation that this very local very pastoral book is is set into yeah. uh, and where you're coming to in that broader landscape from right
0: I I always find that incredibly moving the where are you to to Adam uh and Eve in the garden where where are you uh and I ha- I the 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 fact is um if you put yourself in Adam and Eve shoot sh- sh- they don't have shoes
1: yeah and a fugly say if you put if you put yourself
0: in adam's yeah. videos the the answer that all of us have to give i think is uh i don't know and i and i feel that very very strongly i've always felt that very strongly all, all, all my life if i'm going to answer that that question andrew personally with you, you and i you and i are almost we're, we're twins aren't we um born in the same year 1968 um, we're generate. We used to be called Generation X. I've started to hear people calling us the '89ers now, uh, because we came of age with the falling of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet bloc and everything else. Uh, so '89ers, Generation X, slackers, um, whatever. We, we, we uh, uh, and this is a very uncomfortable. Where are you? This is a very uncomfortable cultural position to find ourselves in because we were outbid by our parents' generation, the baby boomers' generation, uh, whose kind of slightly more rigid cultural mores, if you like, that we we, we felt uncomfortable with. But we've been outsmarted by the millennials too with their slightly doctrinaire approach uh, to cultural questions, it seems to me. Uh, And we were too ironic to accept either of those positions. And there's a squeezed sense, I think, in my generation uh, that um, leaves us feeling very pointedly that question from god where are you i don't know where i fit in and i've always felt that very strongly i i I never fitted in at school um i've always felt uncomfortable in institutions my career before being ordained in the church of england where i feel extremely uncomfortable this this monumental institution organization hierarchy um i i find quite difficult to negotiate i really do yeah. but because i was a freelance writer going, i didn't have a career i just went from job to job to job to job contract to contract uh and uh enjoyed enjoyed myself more or less uh depending on the job but i did uh and never be- never felt i belonged uh in a team Uh, in a club, in a political party, in an institution, in a school, in a university, always felt at odds. Uh, and here, during lockdown, in a parish with people that I loved and in a place where I brought up my children, this sense of, um, belonging became profoundly, uh, and, and in a novel way to me, this is where I belong. Uh, and it was a sense not of me belonging it's not a sense of my belonging it's a case of me belonging to them and me belonging to this place and me belonging to christ it, it's uh, it's it's not something i own this belonging uh and so as a result i think i felt very greed uh into the landscape and again in reference to this weekend's theme, mapping the landscape feels very uncomfortable to me. I didn't want to map the landscape. This was something I couldn't map. How can you map um, this this profound connection uh, with the world and with the people around me? Um, it, it, it's unmapable, uh, and that was what I, I loved. Shall I shall I read another little bit that that, that I hope illustrates that? Uh, and this this is this is in 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 the book, um, and it begins with with an experience which I'm sure you will um, all recognise uh, to do with um, a particular video conferencing platform. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still using Zoom. We do morning and evening prayer on Zoom, uh, and it is it's fantastically useful. I, I I loved leading worship on Zoom. I know that sets me slightly apart, but. I did end up loving it and, and this begins with with a sort of not loving it. Isn't it wonderful? Again, we forget. No one in here's wearing a mask. We're sitting cosily with one another, sharing the space, sharing our thoughts, and sharing, you know, connection without a mask. It's um it's still novel if you let it be. Anyway, I'm fed up with my face. On Zoom with colleagues, at school governor's meetings, leading online discussion groups or during evening prayer services, I check my chin, my hair. When did I last shave? I look tired and pale, I think. I look like a potato. No, I look like the ghost of a potato. Spectral tuber. Spooky root veg. It's not, not a good look. In an attempt to get away from the screen and from my own face for a few hours, I went for a walk with Joey yesterday in Sabanac Forest. Joey is my son who at that time, let's not forget how the lives of um, our children and our teenagers were deeply, deeply disrupted by by the pandemic. Uh, Joey at this point was probably 19, I think. So I went for a walk with Joey yesterday in Sabanac Forest. Our destination was the King of Limbs, a sprawling, spread-eagled explosion of an oak. Heaven knows how old. There's an excellent locally produced map of Savannah Forest mapping the landscape. Our copy is sellotaped and folded into near illegibility. But that's immaterial. I've left it behind on the dresser at home by mistake, and now I have only my vague memories of how to get to the tree and a hopeless sense of direction to guide me. After an hour or so of walking, we're not lost exactly, but I'm not 100% sure where we are. I remember as a child being lost with my parents in the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. Every corner looked the same, crowds pressing in from all angles, gewgaws and rugs and garish fabrics, stacks of ceramic tiles and fast-food stalls, and then off the beaten track, but still in the market, bicycle repair workshops, the racket of a clandestine commodity exchange down some back alley, games of chess, and the sweet smell of apple-flavoured tobacco from hooker pipes, whole streets of spices. The deeper we went, the more lost we became, until my father Pointed to a window high up in the domed roof space. The sun slid in on a slant, dusty and dim. But from the angle of the sun and a glance at his watch, he was able to work out which direction was north. I still don't know how he did it, but he led us out of that bazaar in minutes, just in time to catch our ferry. That's a dad. What isn't Dad is, sorry, I forgot the map, and I've no idea where we are. But then Joey says, hang on, let's take this path, because, yes, here it is. And there, suddenly, is the King of Limbs. A crashed and woody Sputnik. A huge spider that's given up the ghost. I feel disorientated. Tiny bit undadded. My mental map of our whereabouts turning uselessly this way and that in my mind. Savanak Forest is like the bazaar in Istanbul. A network, a complex and irregular web of paths and tracks. There's something chaotic about a forest, about a tree in a forest, just as there's something irreducibly chaotic about a market, with all its myriad transactions and encounters. And I think our faith should be chaotic too, open and growing adventurously and perhaps bizarrely in odd directions like the limbs of this tree, capacious and home, home to all sorts of life. The whole modern, or Enlightenment, project has been categorical, an exercise in neatly parceling up. Here's a map of the market, a map of the forest. Don't even think about venturing off it, because you can't. It's a bit like Zoom. Everything and everyone in a box. In one of her first published works of fiction, Serialised in Blackwood's magazine in 1857, George Eliot describes human societies and schools of thought and beliefs like this. Our subtlest analysis of schools and sects must miss the essential truth unless it be lit up by the love that sees in all forms of human thought and work the life-and-death struggles of separate human beings. What Eliot recognises, it seems to me, is the protean, personal, shifting, maze-like nature of human relationships at the heart of our organisations. If our faith is neat, all rules and rituals mappable, then it's no faith at all. In his letter to the Philippians, St. Paul describes himself as circumcised on the eighth day, as a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. He's on the inside. He can pinpoint himself on the map and feel entirely secure as to his place in the world and in the eyes of God. But that's all crap, as he admits. I'm allowed to say that in front of the bishop because, sorry bishop, because uh, that is Paul's word, not mine. Um, Paul's word, uh, he uses the word skimbalah Uh, in Greek, which literally means dung, but basically means bullshit. I regard all that as rubbish, it says in the NRSV. Let's say bullshit. I regard all that as bullshit in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in him. To be found in Christ, as Paul puts it, is to be lost to righteousness according to the law, an outlaw, literally, and off the map. It is instead to be lit up by the love that sees and knows the life and death struggles of all human beings. Faith is not one stall among many in the market. It can't be reached by following a map. It breaks in. Through a high window, from the outside. It's a sudden turn, down a different path. Okay, well, too
1: Oh, I love that. That's really gorgeous. You've heard it before. I have. <laughs> I've heard. I've, <laughs> but it, there are bits about that I don't remember, and I think that I'd, I'd love to. to Stay with that a little bit, if I if I may, Colin. Because this idea of mapping and belonging is very much a theme, isn't it? Yeah. Maps were were a kind of modernistic, largely attempt, or modern mapping certainly was an attempt to measure, to control environment, to 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 know where you were, and yeah. <laughs> to claim it as well. Mm-hmm. And 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 previous mapping was much more social things like beating the bounds of course in order to know Mm -hmm. what the parish boundary was it was fields and boundaries and hedgerows and rivers and things you you walked it and you knew it intuitively and it's there's a lovely uh a geographer the late doreen massey who wrote that in maps as i want to imagine them you might just walk off the edge of your known world Mm. and she was revolutionary as a geographer died a couple of years ago in thinking of space in far more fluid Human ways, actually, than than inked lines, and I think a lot of our problems have come from some of those in, inked lines. We're
0: frightened of where the ink line ends, aren't we? I mean, at the edge of, you know, here be dragons.
1: Yeah, uh, the, uh, you know, in the blank space beyond the line. Yes, I think we're frightened. So, I grew up in a rectory, and my earliest uh, some of my earliest sense impressions, intuitively were of belonging and not belonging. Mm-hmm. I knew that in church we were, in one sense, I was right at the centre of a of a of a community that was lively and and bustling and and it, 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 there I was and I knew who they were and then who I, I belong, and then I knew I also was right on the margins of of the of the village in other ways as well because it was odd. It was also odd. It was both. What we, well, the church was odd church. being yeah, yeah. being the vicar's child, or whatever. And I know that there's a sense of belonging and not belonging that goes with mm-hmm. your our vocation. You have a a broad a broad vocation, a priestly vocation in a in in a, in a in a wonderfully broad sense. But there is a sense in which we belong and don't belong, is there not? And which is a it's an expression of the church belonging and not belonging. Talk 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 to us a bit more about that, because I I I detect in Tales of a Country Parish, almost an ambivalence about place, but you kind of belong, kind of don't, and you're not sure whether really belonging is the right thing anyway. Talk, talk to us a bit about that. Well, I, I think, you, you know, I've I've touched on this
0: already, that sense of not belonging yeah. um, within certain sort of institutions or organisations. I always say, we, we've all experienced this, isn't the lon- the loneliest place for a new parent can be the school gate? That the first day in a new job, you don't know your way around. You don't know these faces. You can feel rootless. You can feel lost. I'll never get to grips with this. As a society, I think we're frightened of that, and we run to the categorial. We run to the map. We want to pin things down and get, uh, get it right. Getting it right is only ever going to get you so far, it seems to me. I've got... Um, the, the, they They use it in that this recent film um the the bio the the uh collage of David Bowie's work, which was called moon Age Daydream, I think, and there's a wonderful quote that david Bowie, that i've I've always loved, and it's nice to see it kind of um giving with a wider audience in this new film where he talks about the importance of taking yourself out of your depth, and he says just when you can't quite feel your toes touching the bottom that's when you're in a place where you might be able to do something exciting. That sense of being, not that I don't fit in, that I am uprooted, and that I don't belong, does have very important, that I'm off the map. There might be dragons, but there might be something blessed here too. And 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 I think we, we as a society can overstress uh, the desire to belong, um and i and I, I i have written quite recently about belonging that i'll, I'll read a passage that expresses that ambivalence i mm. it, Tales of a country parish and the pandemic, the experience of pandemic uh with a group of people that I love deepened a sense of belonging, but at the same time churned up that sense of where precisely am I in all of this uh so this this is a slightly more recent piece that isn't in tales of a country parish but uh I hope might be in a successor. Uh, to Tales of a Country Parish, that, um, that will pick away at this a lot more. So th- th- this is really comes out of remembrance. Last Sunday, at the war Memorial in Shalbourne, my son Joseph laid a wreath to remember the fallen from the parish of Tidcombe and Fosbury. At 22, he is already, I imagine, older, than many of those whose names were read out during the Remembrance service. Some of those names crop up several times. From Tidcombe alone, the name Humphreys is read out three times. In the repetition is a weight of loss almost unbearable. After the service at St Michael and All Angels, Joseph chose to walk home via the plough for a pint with some friends. In the warm autumn sunshine, his walk took him up hills, through fields and over the downs, a route intimately familiar, I'm sure, to the young men whose names we'd just heard and who gave their lives for this country in two world wars during the 20th century. They belonged here, just as Joseph belongs here. But Joseph's walk also took him across a parish boundary. The names of the fallen are listed under the parishes where they lived, where they belonged. In death, as in life, they are men of this parish. One of the great gifts of the parish system is its offering to each and every one of us the name of a place where we belong. Everywhere is somewhere. With a name. The erosion of our sense of belonging can be charted partly through the abandonment of names. Until quite recently, I had a friend who would answer the phone by saying, Oxenwood 237. Now, Oxenwood is replaced by an area code, a string of numbers. A couple of years ago, an advertising hoarding for some new housing in one of the parishes. I look after bore the slogan, SN8. The postcode says it all.
1: (laughs) SN is Swindon.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What can a postcode actually say? (laughs) Now you might belong in a particular area, but you belong to a parish. The difference is subtle, but crucial. A parish's name has history, has poetry, it calls us together. A postcode differentiates us and sets us apart. Despite what your telephone or broadband provider may suggest, you don't belong to your area code. And ignore the blandishments of developers and estate agents too. You don't belong to a particular postcode either. We've drifted from parish to catchment area, and the change has cost us dearly. Unlike a postcode or an administrative district, a parish is something to which you can belong richly and meaningfully. The men of this parish has deep and moving meaning. And yet a sense of belonging has hidden dangers too. In the 1890s, Mrs. Caroline Astor's New York townhouse boasted a ballroom with a capacity for 400 guests. To be invited to a ball at the Astor's was to belong. You had arrived, and the 400 became a way of referring to the fashionable and prominent in New York City at that time. When King Belshazzar has a feast to celebrate his power and dominion over the Babylonian Empire. He invites, like Mrs. Astor, the great and good of his vast realm. King Belshazzar made a great festival for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Daniel, chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar's great festival is a festival of belonging how important and privileged the invitees must have felt. And as Belshazzar understands, belonging presupposes a border between the invited and the not-invited, those on the inside and those left on the outside. Belshazzar marks this border and polices it by display and by desecration. The gold and silver vessels from the house of God in Jerusalem, which his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had captured, are used at the feasting for carousing. Belonging, Belonging. has triumph and success built in. For us to be victorious, they must be defeated. Ultimately, the status of Belshazzar's lords And the prestige of New York's 400 rests not on how fashionable and powerful the invitees are, but on how unfashionable and insignificant the rest of us are. For them to belong, we must be excluded. A sense of belonging is vital in any community. But for Christians, this sense of belonging cannot afford to become cosy or code for accomplishment and status, nor can it be at the expense of those who remain outside. In a reversal of Belshazzar's model and Mrs Astor's, Jesus compares the Kingdom of Heaven to a wedding banquet given by a king for his son. But when the king's invitations are snubbed or ignored, He urges his slaves to go into the main streets and invite everyone you find. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Belonging in Jesus' picture is not a matter of Mrs. Astor's choice or of the king's, but of yours. And the choice may cost. When a particular guest is found to be without a wedding robe, that guest is thrown out. Belonging comes with expectations and demands. Sometimes it will demand everything of us, the men of this parish. The parish system in this country is like the wedding feast in Jesus's parable. It's a way of belonging and a way of being called by name. No one is left out. You belong. But so does everyone else. The capacity is Christ.
1: Gee. Oh, that's beautiful. Listening to this week's episode
0: of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first ten issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.